Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. We are continuing our discussion on consequentialism by exploring how God began to uncover the impact of consequentialism in my own life. So over the next four episodes, we'll take a look at what God has been showing me in my own life. The first area in which God uncovered my consequentialism was in my grace, or lack thereof. You know, in most of my life, I was never in a position to show much grace. At least, it, in retrospect, it doesn't feel like I had much opportunity to do that. Because I was surrounded by people who were mostly like me. And of course, God knows I didn't need much grace, right? I was a pretty upstanding Christian school, church-going uh, person. So... Everybody else around me was, for as as much as I knew, just like me. That changed a bit when I joined our church's diaconate. Because part of what our diaconate did was that we met with individuals who were in, in need of grace. And of course, now that sounds very, very condescending to me because I am and was in need of grace, and so was everybody else I knew around me. But the types of people that we would meet with, that would that would come into our church and seek assistance, they were clearly in need of grace. Now, me and, and my denomination, we tended to lead with our heads more than we led with, with our hearts. And there are a lot of things I love about uh, the passions and gifts that God has given to me and the denomination that I am, I am in. I love it. But there are, there are pros and cons to everything. And for me and my denomination, the, one of the major cons was that most of us tended to lead with our heads more than our hearts. And maybe that's even uh, a little too soft. We led with our heads, and many of us don't really have hearts. That might be a, a better way to put it. Though perhaps that, that goes a little bit too far the other way and is too harsh. But I mean, we, we had a, a formal, sterile process for evaluating the needs of people when they, when they came in. You know, an individual would walk into the church while the church service was going on, We'd take them to a, a side room, ask them a bunch of questions, uh, a lot about, you know, do you attend another church? Uh, what job do you have? Are you divorced? I mean, all, all kinds of questions. To try to figure out, are, are they worthy of, of giving or not? Do they have other, other ways that they can get money or not? And while I, I'm not saying that that process is necessarily bad and that some of those questions shouldn't be asked, the process was sterile. It, it wasn't at all relational or gracious. And I don't mean this at all uh, to be a criticism of, of uh, our diaconate or our church or our denomination or Christianity, whoever uses this type of process, because I was not a product of this process or this system. I was 100% a participant. And just to give you one example of, of how 
I I was worse than our system was, is that you know when it was when it was my my turn to kind of be on call, it was really frustrating to me that these these people would call, and I I know that a lot of them are kind of working the system or um, have have other ways that they can get finances or whatever, and I was really frustrated that they would call in and then of course it would always be an emergency it'd be like well my my lights are getting shut off tomorrow so i need the money right now within two hours before uh before things close down so it was always an emergency and we always had to go out to them and 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 it was just frustrating and understandably so i'm still frustrated when i think about it but i had a, a really good idea you know i decided that uh, I was going to propose this idea that, hey, look, if these people are really in need, then they can wait. And not only can they wait, but they can come into our church. They, uh, you know, okay, so if they're poor and we had lots of single mothers come in. If it's a single mother who has kids, she can get a babysitter. If she can't afford a babysitter, she can find a friend or family member. Like if she really wants the money and needs the money, she can figure out a way to make it into the church. She needs to come to us. They need to come to us. Because uh, us just running around like chickens with our heads cut off uh, at the last minute, that no, they need to show some initiative. And so I decided that I wanted to propose that. They come into us on Sundays when we're already there, because I don't want to have to leave my my newborn and my wife and go to church at night after a long day of work. I mean, that's uh, it's just so much. So they need to come when we're at church, the two hours a week that we're at church, and that's what we'll do. And people, I guess, thought it was a good idea because we, or at least I implemented it, and started making people come in. In that time frame... God brought us uh, a woman uh, named Sarah. Not really named Sarah, but Sarah for this, this podcast. And Sarah jumped through all of the hurdles that I set up to avoid having these awkward conversations with people and, and sitting down in a room with them and asking awkward questions. She jumped through the hoops. She brought a friend who had a... Her friend had a car because she didn't. Her friend brought her and her kids. Her friend watched her kids while she talked with us through the process. And, I mean, she she jumped all the hurdles. She got through. And for whatever reason, um, the, the other guy that was on the shift with me at that point, we just decided to walk with Sarah. And instead of ending it at that process, we began to pursue her. And that was, that was not of me. I did not have a wonderful heart that decided to do that. Um, God must have just done something in me to make me pursue that. And he brought the heart later. Uh, but it, whatever my motivation was in pursuing her, I don't think it was good at the time. I think I, think I was fortunate that God was gracious to me in not letting me persist in, in my ungraciousness. And we walked with Sarah, and we did all kinds of things uh, for her. 
her fiance was in prison. We visited her fiance. When he got out of prison, uh, at like 5 a.m. in the morning, I was there before I had to get to, to school to teach. And we picked him up and drove him to his place, the place that we found for them. And, and um, I think our diaconate spent like $2,000 on them, getting their home set up, uh, getting them like a rental and, uh, and all kinds of things. So we, yeah, we, we just walked with her. She came to our house, I think it was for Thanksgiving or like the day before or something. But we, we had her family to our house. And uh, we gave her some of our pots and pans. And uh, my wife came along with us and she taught her how to grocery shop. Sarah didn't know how to price compare. And we walked with her. And by the end of it, uh, Sarah's fiance and uh, her kids, I think, ended up doing okay. But Sarah just sabotaged the relationship and things went down in flames. It just, uh, I think she got back into drugs and it just wasn't good. But you know, out of we might have helped a lot of other people with paying rent and, and all kinds of stuff. But I'll tell you what, the only person that I treated rightly was Sarah. And it's not because the consequences, the ends, the the thing that came about um, justified the grace that Sarah was shown, but because Sarah was the only person that I actually showed grace to. Um, the case went down in flames, but I have I have no regrets with the money that we spent on her, with the time that we spent, uh, because I know that if Sarah came back uh, and she was clean and she was able to, to reflect, she knows that she could come back to us and, and we would be there and we'd have expectations and we wouldn't just hand her money, but we would be seeking her best. I can't say that about anybody else, even though we gave, we gave uh, money to other people, or not to them, but uh, we, we paid some of their, their bills and such. I don't know that anybody else ever felt that way from interacting with me. And that is is sad, that I just didn't show people grace. So my diaconal experience and my specific experience with, with Sarah has... It really started this thought process on grace. And when... When uh, my understanding of consequentialism came a few years later and merged with a lot of the struggles I had in showing grace and the questions I had, things began to make a lot more sense of why I acted the way that I did and and just what my problems were with grace. I think a, one aspect in which I can emphasize what started to unravel for me the most is is in discussing probably uh, financial means um, because that's what our diaconate dealt with and that's a lot of a lot of the the consideration I had in in how to show grace tended to be through through finances and most Christians that I know when when you talk about giving to other people they're absolutely infatuated with this idea of the avoidance of enabling others 
And I get it. As as an American, the whole independence thing is a is a really big deal. And if you're all about independence, enablement is the antithesis of independence because that creates dependence. And we don't want that. And so we're we are just so infatuated with not enabling others. And this this can extend beyond finances and it can go to to time as well like uh, the time you spend with people or the assistance you give them the the jobs you do for them um, etc and we think that if we give grace too early or too much or too often that we will enable somebody and while I'm not going to deny that 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 can be the case it's a it's a really odd notion especially in in my denomination which is reformed where we proclaim that grace precedes faith and that Christ loved us before we could love him, that that his pre-gracing us is actually the thing that motivated us and changed us and and, um, transformed us, that his free grace to his enemies in measure, beyond measure of what we could imagine, I, that's, that's, what Christianity, and especially with the emphasis in the Reformed circles, that's what Christianity is. That's the gospel. You know, I I experienced that too. Now, I I was, uh, you know, I came to Christ when I was supposedly like three. Um, I I don't know a time when I didn't follow Christ or believe in Him, etc. So it's hard for me to look at my life and and see this this pre-gracing and this transformation that occurred in my life. But I'll tell you, through my diaconal experience and my experience with Sarah, I will say that it was the one time that I led with grace with Sarah um, that I felt freed when I was able to to lead with grace uh, rather than with stipulation and... Uh, just sterile processes. And that leading with grace, that's the only time that I, I did not have nagging regrets in um, in how I handled things. And that's not to say that I, I didn't do anything wrong with uh, with Sarah's uh, situation. You know, I always could have done something differently, but there is a big difference in, in what it did to my soul between overgracing somebody and undergracing somebody. And and I'm sure what I just said there is probably sacrilegious to a lot of people because we we have this other term that we throw around quite a lot because it, we we perceive that if if enabling is bad um and we think that overgracing is this tool for enablement and our job is to be efficient with our resources. Uh, we call this stewardship, right? St- our, our resources need to be stewarded really well. The stewardship, though, uh, it sounds like a really, really good term, and it sounds like, like something that's uh, that's that's very biblical, and something that is going to uh, help us to do the right thing. And I, I do think that stewardship is a biblical term. But it's always ironic to me that when we use the word stewardship, we almost always mean uh, financial goods or material goods, 
we have to steward those things. Um, and sometimes people will talk about stewarding time as well. But we don't talk about stewarding grace either. Like, um, you know, with, with, with Sarah's situation, was it better for me to steward the finances of our church or to steward the grace that I doled out to Sarah? And when we say stewardship of the finances of our church, what we mean is, is there bang for my buck? If I spend $2,000 on Sarah, she better become a Christian, because if not, then that's a waste of my resources. Me showing grace to Sarah is less important than um, me not wasting $2,000 on Sarah if she doesn't really have a good chance of becoming a Christian. And so stewardship is consequentialistic. It's, um, it ends up being uh, about outcomes rather than stewarding the, the love and the, the wonderful things that God has given to us. It's all about material goods. It's all about outcomes. And to elaborate on this, I want to, um, to kind of tell you a story and, and then uh, kind of have another story inside of a story. So, so let me start my story with the youth group in Romania and, and a game that we played. It was called uh, Courageous or Stupid. So I want you to, to play along, and I want you to think about these, these statements that I make. And I want you to answer, is it courageous or is it stupid? So here we go. Number one, walking into a fire. Is that courageous or stupid? Number two, jumping into a frozen lake. Is that courageous or stupid? Number three, running across a busy highway. Is that courageous or stupid? Well, it, if you answered correctly, like like all of the kids did, and like the the leaders, uh, like the leaders said, all of those things are stupid. Walking into a fire, jumping into a frozen lake, running across a busy highway. They're just, they're dumb. Because they're, they're really dangerous. But you know, as I, as I thought about each of those statements, I recognized that that's not true. Those things are not necessarily dumb. Because they are significantly determined by context. Walking into a fire to save a child who's trapped. That's courageous. Walking into a fire because a friend dares you to? That's stupid. Jumping into a frozen lake uh, for January 1st, so for New Year's, that's probably stupid. Um, jumping into a frozen lake to save a dog? Maybe courageous. A cat? That might be stupid. Jumping in to save a cat. Uh, jumping in to save a person, yeah, that would be that would be good, right? That's uh, courageous. Running across a busy highway, once again, it just depends. Like, are you running across a busy highway to escape from the police, or are you running across a busy highway because uh, you're trying to save somebody? It, it really just depends on your situation. Let's take that that thought process now and I want to look at another courageous or stupid example from one of my favorite books Les Mis 
And in that story, you it's a very long story, so I'll try to I'll try to summarize it really quickly. Uh, the beginning part, which uh, has important context for for the story that we're going to see, that is, you have this guy named Jean Valjean, who to feed his family because they're they're in great need, he steals some bread, but he gets caught and he goes to prison for a long, long time, uh, an inordinate amount of time for for what he did, at least in our culture standards. And he goes to goes to prison. He gets out, and of course he's he's marked. He he can't do anything. He can't get work. He can't like what what's he supposed to do? He can't support himself. Well, he comes along to this church, and a priest lets him stay there, against the the nuns and the the household's wishes, because you know they don't know what he's going to do. Is he going to steal something? Is he going to try to kill them? They don't know what he's going to do. But the priest recognizes that this man is in great need, and he lets him in. Now here's the question. Was the priest's act to allow Valjean, a prisoner who has no means to support himself, and who looks all disheveled and crazy, um, is the priest courageous or stupid to let him stay in the church, where there are uh, many material goods as well as lives that kind of hang in the balance. Now, the priest didn't know anything at all about what the outcome was going to be. He had no idea if anybody would be harmed. He had no idea if property would be taken. And he had no idea if he was going to have any impact on Valjean, good or bad, whatsoever. In fact, statistics would have said that the priest's action was unwise because damage to himself as well as others in the house and property was was very highly likely while the transformation of John Valjean was extremely unlike unlikely so in this sense the priest was a bad steward right he he endangered himself he endangered others he endangered god's material blessings that had been donated by uh by individuals in the community and maybe even in, in our modern minds, the worst of it was that by doing this, he might even be enabling Valjean. So Valjean stays the night, and he ends up slipping away in in the middle of the night, stealing stealing uh, a bunch of, of the, I believe it was the, the silverware or something, some of the, the silver goods. And he gets caught by the police because he's he's pretty conspicuous. Uh, and the police bring him back to the to the church, and Valjean knows that he's going back to prison, and there's nothing he can do, and uh, he's guilty. When they get there, they said, "Hey, we we caught this guy with with all the stuff that we know came from the church. Uh, we're going to take him to jail." And the priest says, "No, no, no." Um, I gave this this man in need. I I gave this stuff to him, and in fact, I can't believe he left without the you know the most precious of of the things that we have here. These I believe they are silver candlesticks. Here, take these silver candlesticks too. So not only does he enable this criminal by not uh, not prosecuting him, but he gives him more. He gives him more than the criminal even stole. 
What a bad steward. What an enabler this priest was. But absolutely nobody, nobody reads the story that way. None of us. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. It doesn't matter if you are like ultra-libertarian or conservative. or It just doesn't matter. You don't read the story that way, saying that the priest was a bad steward or an enabler. Now we have to ask ourselves some questions then. Is, is the priest, do we think highly of the priest only because we basically have Valjean's story in this book and we know that the priest's actions worked? Are we saying that the priest's actions were courageous and noble and good and not immoral because they led to Valjean being a changed man? If the priest would have been wrong about Valjean, if Valjean would have just turned back to a life of crime and gone to another church and stolen from that church, uh, if the priest's act didn't work, would we then say, well, yeah, the priest was immoral. I mean, he was a poor steward, and he shouldn't have shown Valjean grace, and he just enabled a criminal. So are we willing to say that as if grace enacted on its own isn't beautiful and good, but it, it needs this outcome to to be something good. So grace is only good if I know that I'm going to get something out of it, if I know that I'm going to achieve some result. And at least in Reformed circles, if, if grace is based on expected outcome or merit, and that's essentially what expected outcome is, merit, like, uh, did Valjean deserve to be graced? Well, if he changes his life and does a good thing, then he deserved it. Um, how is that grace? That's not grace. That's that's merit. Um, that's earnings, as Romans would say, right? Wages. Uh, a worker receives his wages. That kind of thinking would just turn morality and altruism here, grace. It would turn it into relativism, something that's determined by outcomes and something that, in its in and of itself, is not good and something that how could we ever actually perform true grace because we're only working with statistics here um if i grace somebody that i think it won't if i think it won't enable them and i think i'm being a good steward and i grace them but the outcome isn't good now all of a sudden my grace wasn't good i mean i was statistically thought it would be good but that just doesn't make any sense that grace is determined, the goodness of grace is determined by outcomes and not by the fact that grace in and of itself is beautiful and meritorious and, and good and, uh, and awesome and like God. It just doesn't make any sense. So how does everyone intuitively know that the priest's action in this story is good regardless of what happens to Valjean. How do we know that? While still uh, coddling this enablement idea as much as we do. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying that we should seek to enable people or we shouldn't be wise, but it, how is it something that is just the the heart of the question that we ask when we deal with with gracing people? I can't answer that question for everybody, 
but I, I think I can answer it for myself. How would I have explained that before God convicted me of consequentialism? And I think it, it would go to the story where Jesus says um, that he who is forgiven little loves little. For most of my life, I, I intellectually understood that I was a sinner and that I needed to be forgiven, but I, I didn't really see myself as a big sinner. Um, and consequently, consequently uh, I, I didn't view myself as being in need of that much forgiveness, even though I knew that Christ had to die on the cross. It, you know, he was there 99.9% for the other guy, and that 0.01% for me. Um, that That's kind of how it felt. And I think I felt like I was forgiven little. And so I I loved little. Now that, that individualism uh, in in my community, in our, our nation, uh, and the, this idea that people, we need to give people what they deserve, that played a, a very big role in my life. And I would have never said that uh, I believed in like work salvation or anything like that. But in ways I didn't even imagine, the idea of merit and works seeped into the way that I I viewed myself in in standing before God and, and the way that I viewed other people. Because God didn't have to forgive me as much. Uh, in my mind, I became an arbiter of God's grace whose job wasn't to administer in the same measure that grace was administered to me because God didn't really have to spend that much grace on me. So instead of, of being an arbiter of God's grace, my job was to protect it. I needed to make sure that other people didn't take advantage of it. I needed to make sure that not too much grace was shown, that, that we didn't waste God's grace, especially on those who didn't deserve it especially on those who had no chance of changing. And this this idea of God's uh, grace being wasted came up uh, in my life just about a year or two ago and, and kind of put the, the nail in the coffin for my my ordeal struggling through this concept of, of grace and what it should look like and how consequentialism had deformed that in my life. We were going through a, a book study on Tim Keller's The Prodigal God. And uh, we were allowing, uh, or we asked our uh, one of our uh, friends, attendees, to lead the study one week, uh, one of our Romanian attendees. And when he came to lead the study, he led with this question. He said, you know, in Romania, we have this phrase which says something like this. It says, that which is good is rare. And he asked us if we agreed with that. I thought about it for, for a bit. You know, diamonds are rare, but they're really good. They're expensive. Um, you've got like yachts and mansions, front row seats at a concert, uh, vintage wines. I mean, the things that are, are more rare tend to be better and tend to be more expensive. So 
I was like, yeah, sure. That's, I mean, generally true. I wouldn't make that a universal claim, but yeah, I think that's that's pretty true. And then he kind of threw a zinger and he said, well, the, the chapter that we just read on, on God's grace says that God's grace is limitless. It It's not only limitless in terms of how much there is of it, but in who it's available to. Like, it, it is for everybody to whatever extent they need it. So if good things are rare and God's grace is not rare, doesn't that devalue God's grace? I mean, isn't that isn't that inflation? Isn't that God flooding the market with grace? How does that not devalue it? You know, that was a, a very good question, and it's it's one that I continue to think through. And when I bring it up, I mean, people are like, yeah, that's that's really tough. It took me a long time of thinking through it to to come up with, I mean, just a, a few points that I think are going to help us here in our discussion on consequentialism. One of the first observations I, I made was that you know, I, I do think that the best things in life are rare, like the diamonds, the yachts, all those things. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is that the necessary things in life are not rare. You know, we view grace like a diamond when I think it should be viewed more like water or air. Um, it's kind of like the, the paradox of, of the diamond in the desert or water in the desert. You, know, you, you realize that water is actually more valuable than a diamond, but it takes you some pretty extreme circumstances to figure out that water is more important than a diamond. And that's because for most of us, water is just ever-present. And I, I think God's grace is a lot like water and air. And for me, growing up in a, a Christian home, in a Christian school, and and, um, and just all of these, just surrounded by my Christian environment, grace was like air, um, at least the way we talked about it and things. The experience of grace, I would say, was, was pretty rare. Um, because... You, yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's another story. But I, I don't think the experience was all there. But, man, we talked about it, and we believed in it, and, and all of that stuff. It was it was present, and we, we would recount stories of people who experienced great grace. So we kind of lived vicariously um, through the changed lives of other people. Uh, we recognized that it, that it was like air. But it, it's a God taking me to the desert, meeting Sarah and walking with her for a little bit to recognize that grace wasn't just something that I could talk about and say, oh yeah, that's awesome, like we need it, and that's that's great. Um, it was something that, that I needed, like not just other people. Um, and and uh, that was that was transformational for me to recognize grace as, as uh, a necessity and um, not something that needed to be guarded like uh, fort like gold at Fort Knox but something that needed to be just needed to be distributed uh, more like aid to to refugees I wasn't my job was not to uh, be an elite guard my job was to be an, a distributor and the only way that that started to happen and is is continuing to grow is because 
God has allowed me to see that uh, I am a recipient of that great grace as well. That idea of being a distributor and not a, a guard has really changed my, my actions. And I, I need to be heard as, as uh, saying, not saying, that we just give everyone everything or that we throw off all discretion. I think more so I'm, I'm questioning a couple things. I'm, I'm trying to bring into question whether we're supposed to lead with grace or with caution. And certainly there are many times where grace and caution will be uh, present, maybe even close to being in equal amounts. But it, it seems to me that Grace is supposed to be the prevailing factor. Our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and if I gave Sarah more resources than maybe would have been uh, the best to do, because I was leading with too much grace, then my father can sell one of his cows and can give us some of that money back. He can work in her heart, and he can prevent in entitlement, enablement, whatever. But um, for Sarah's only encounter with the hands and feet of Christ to not be gracious, that's, that's not something that God tends to do in other ways. Yeah, he can make the God, he can make the rocks cry out if he wants to, but for whatever reason, God has chosen to use His church and His people as the means to carry the gospel and community to those in need. And um, it, Sarah needed to have grace from us more than she needed caution. And God can replace funds, but um, Sarah needed to experience grace. And that, that kind of touches on the, the second question as well, which is, is risking poor stewardship of finances or grace more risky? What's more risky? Risking stewardship of finances or stewardship of grace? And I think risking the poor stewardship of grace is riskier. I think one of the, the third things that I'm questioning is, whether a probabilistic outcome should determine our moral assessment of how to move forward. And I, again, I, I'm thankful to God for science and for all of the, the wonderful things that he has given to us uh, and, and the ways that we are able to make decisions more knowledgeably. But I don't know that m making decisions more knowledgeably is equal to making them more wisely. If I know that the chances of the money I spent on Sarah had a 1% chance of working, that's great that statisticians can tell me because of her demographic and situation and all that, that she's hopeless. That, that's great that they can tell me that. But, man, that really, that just undercuts the power of the Holy Spirit that, that undercuts um, 
indiscriminate love and grace and I I don't know it just feels so so sterile and unchristian to to do a bunch of math and figure out who has hope and who doesn't and let's spend our money accordingly I get it and and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong but I I don't know I have to think more about about that but even if it's not necessarily wrong, certainly there's nothing necessarily wrong with extravagant love towards people who have no hope, either. Um, and I, I would just point back to the Les Mis story and the priest. And we know that the outcome of an individual, the potential outcome, um, does not determine the goodness of a situation, the goodness of an action. And how do we how do we wrestle with that in how we spend our resources? I I fully acknowledge right here that mercy ministry and the distribution of grace and, and finances, they're difficult and murky topics. Very murky. I I certainly don't claim to be right about everything or have all the answers. In fact I might not even have many answers and I might be wrong about a lot of things. But I, I do know one thing, and that is that our consequentialist culture errs too far in its hoarding of the grace that we've been given, usually in favor of stewarding, uh, quote, the, the finances uh, that we feel are often more important than grace. It's a discussion that needs to be continued to find an appropriate balance, but one that certainly needs to be had and I, again, I, I've just recognized how recognizing, <laughs> I've recognized how my consequentialism, the consequentialism in my life had stripped me of my joy in helping others because I wasn't helping others. They were objects to me to be fixed. Um, and, and I wasn't really showing grace. And my morality, my altruism, was uh, relativistic and based on outcomes and not uh, God's spirit and his goodness and all of that. I'm hopeful that you can see through my journey how a consequentialist ethic has, has really marred our view of the grace that we need and the grace that, that we are to distribute, not guard. So as you go out, make sure that you turn to God and recognize the grace that you need for your life. It's a necessity. And um, distribute that freely to others this week. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.